We don't think about it often, but we have no claim on the future. None of us does. And sometimes that thought comes, and when it does, we have an opportunity to reflect on what we've been doing with this life that we have. And those are moments of high opportunity. My friend Vito was having brunch with some friends in Brooklyn, obviously, (laughs) after church on Sunday. And they'd waited a long time to get into a pizza place that specialized in Detroit-style pizza. What is Detroit-style pizza? Only in Brooklyn, right? They wait and wait, and then they sit down at the table. And when the pizza's delivered, there's a tattoo on the arm of the woman who sets it before them that catches my friend's attention. And it pulls him deep into thought. It says right there on her forearm in plain text, your time is limited. Now he's not thinking about the pizza, but about the truth that at some point, he will cease to be. That everything that he's worked for, it'll be gone. The church that he's been so eager to build up, that'll be in someone else's hands. Then he's thinking about the friends that he's with, this hour that I'm using with them, it will go, and and there's nothing I can do to claim it again. Is this the best way to use this hour? Is this the right restaurant to have come to? What if this is my last meal? Did I order the right pizza? Uh, How will I ever retrieve the 45 minutes that we sat waiting for a table at this overly popular restaurant? Then it occurred to him, maybe this tattoo was actually standard issue for all waitresses and waiters so that people wouldn't spend too long at their tables. (laughs) This is the truth about every one of you. Your time is limited. And it's good now and then to think about that truth, especially if thinking about it directs you to consider the best possible way to use the limited time that you do have. If it moves you as a maturing person, and every one of us in here is meant to be just that, a person who's on the way each day to maturing, if it moves you to find a faithful answer to this particular question, what is my life for? If you never ask that, then you are going to end up living accidentally. Pushed this way or that way by whichever direction the wind happens to be blowing around you. And then, all at once, no more chance to seek a purpose for your life because your time is limited. Uh, Look with me at this statement from the letter of James, who we've been learning from as a church in hopes of having questions that burn away those elements of our character that need to be burned away. This is James 4, 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A question, what is your life? And then an observation in the morning, before the sun rises, because the air at night has become cold and the ground is still warm, in every valley there forms the fog. And if you're awake when the lights first start coming into the sky, you can see it lingering there like smoke still in the morning air. But then the moment the sun rises high enough and the air 
reaches a critical temperature, just like that, the fog is gone. Your life is like that, James says. You appeared through no effort of your own. You came into the world as if by magic. And now, even though your default setting is to go on imagining that you will be around forever, at some point, just like fog in the morning, you will be gone, and you can't change that. And, and that thought, James raises, not to depress you or to make you feel melancholy, but rather to push you in the direction that might have a profound impact on how you choose to live day by day. That's why James brings this up. He wants every one of us, all the people who would encounter this letter, to live on purpose rather than accidentally, to be pushed to ask of themselves whether their approach to living is the right one. Because without thoughtful reflection, we will live with the wrong idea about what life is really for. I'm sure of this. Every one of us in here has encountered at one time or another someone who is living in the wrong direction because they had the wrong idea about what life was really about. Now, James describes that kind of person in the previous verse, in verse 13. He writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. Here's a person who makes two mistakes. He lives today as if he can know what next year will bring, when in fact he does not even know what tomorrow will bring. That's his first mistake. His second is a matter of the organizing principle of his life, the endeavor around which his entire energy and living revolves, what his life is all about. It's there in those two words, making money. Money is helpful, isn't it? Yeah, we, we need money, and it's good, and there's nothing wrong with it. If we were a different kind of church, a few of you would shout amen right now. <laughs> it's a gift that God gives, which when it's stewarded in the right way, when it's used in the manner in which God intended, can be immensely powerful for building up his kingdom. If you make money, and lots of it, keep going, do your best at it, money in itself is neutral. However, when it becomes the center of gravity around which every endeavor revolves, it becomes a problem. The person who looks ahead, as this person does, and decides that his life is for the acquisition of more and more money has made a mistake. His answer to what is my life for, is a mistake. It's not that he should be judged as a bad person. It's just that he has the wrong idea right now. When he begins to believe that his life is all about chasing a number, he's got the wrong idea for what life is really about. In itself, this is an unworthy goal for his one and only life. That's what James wants us to see when he brings up this particular understanding of life. But listen now, there are many other misguided goals for life that James could have named. If this morning here you are and your goal is nothing but money, maybe it's James who will help you wonder, is this the right decision? If that's not your organizing aim, maybe there's a different one. Maybe for you, every single effort in your life is really about pleasing the people who are nearby you. That you're driven this way and that by what you think will meet the expectations of the people 
who you have decided to care about, James would come to you and say uh, to you as you sit there saying, um, it, it's all about making people happy. He would say, come now you who say, in this coming year I will finally learn how to please everyone. Because that's not what your life is about. And maybe that's not your problem. Maybe uh, you live as if the organizing aim is maximizing pleasure. Now, finding every possible way to create enjoyable experiences for yourself, as many as possible. To you, James would say, come now, you who say in this coming year, I will finally fix my soul's longing for satisfaction through good times. Because again, that's not what your life is all about. And he wouldn't say that because he's grumpy. He does seem kind of grumpy, doesn't he? But that's not the point. Uh, he loves you. And he writes his letter to push you to the kinds of burning questions that God will use to change you. He cares about you being the very best you that God made you to be. He wants to burn away the dross, not who you really are. And if your whole life is about experiencing more and more pleasure, James wants you to stop, not because pleasure is bad. God made you to have in its own way a life that has pleasure in it, but because that's not good enough for an answer for what your life is all about. Or if it's pleasing the people around you, again, it's good to do what is good for others and to please those in a good way who need you to help them, but that's not what life is all about. And, and money is important and powerful, but again, it can't become the center. When it does, there's a problem. And James wants you to pause and look at yourself and do this now. Try your very best to look at you and ask, what am I showing through this life of mine that I've come to believe my life is for. So that you can live on purpose. Now James not only raises the question and shows us someone who has the wrong answer, he very, very clearly offers the right way to think about this question. In verse 15, he tells us what we should say when we look ahead at this life we have. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes... We will live and do this or that. Here, we have to take our time. The only way to understand the purpose of your one and only life faithfully is in relationship to what the Lord wishes. I'm letting it sink into your mind because I desperately want you to see this. Because it's magnificent. The implications of that fact are absolutely astounding. God has desires that are related to you. Look at that phrase, the Lord wishes. The God who made the entire universe and everything in it. The one uncreated being in all of the universe, God, who decided out of his benevolence and grace to create something rather than leaving there nothing in the universe. That God, the God who brought every single thing which exists into being out of his own mind and through his own word, that God, according to James, has wishes that relate to you personally. I want you to pause and imagine if that's true, think about what that means for a moment. That little old you or little young you, has a place in the mind of God. That when God 
sees this world in all of its complexity, he's not too distracted to also see your existence in this very moment in all of its complexity and you have a place in his mind and not only a place in his mind, but there is a wish in the Lord's heart for what your day should be like tomorrow and the next day and the year after. That God gives you space and he has wishes related to you. And the reason James wants you to understand this is you can't think about the year ahead of you or the months ahead of you or the hours ahead of you or even this moment. You cannot think about it in the right way until you understand that already God himself has thoughts about your future in his mind. And if you want to know what your life is for, you have to refer there first. And listen, we can be even more particular because when the, when the phrase the Lord is used by James, he does not just mean God in general but he means someone particular. Can we try like church participation for a moment? We hardly ever do this. Can we try it? Who does James mean when he says the Lord? Be brave. Jesus, right. Almost every time the pastor does church participation and asks about someone, it's always Jesus. (laughs) James was one of Jesus' earthly brothers. Listen to this. Before James died, he did not believe that Jesus was anyone really special. He didn't. Uh, Did I get that right? Before Jesus died, James, yeah, okay. Did I turn it around? I'm getting ahead of myself or behind myself. I don't know. Before Jesus died, James looked at him and said, my brother is maybe a bit crazy. He really did. He thought he's, he's a good teacher. He's a powerful presence, but he's not who he says he is. And, and James watched day after day his brother Jesus grow in popularity and in influence. And I'm sure that was mixed for him. Try to imagine this. I'm sure in some measure James saw his brother teaching things that everyone really agreed with and they were powerful. But then he also saw his brother in his own mind, James would have said this, crossing a line to the point where now he was getting himself tangled up in the kinds of claims that were evoking resistance from the religious community And now he was getting himself into trouble. And James probably, along with the rest of his family, would say, you know, if Jesus doesn't cut this out, he's going to get himself into real trouble. That's what James believed before Jesus died and and rose again from the dead. Now, when, when James wrote this letter, with all of the people who would read it in mind, and you in mind too, he had come to believe that no one can ever ask this question and have the right answer unless they know about his brother Jesus. He really believed that. That the only way to reckon with the truth that my friend saw that there on that tattooed arm, which is that your time is limited, the only way to let that push you into the right answer is to know about Jesus. What about Jesus did James think you needed to know about? Listen, it was this. When James and all of the rest of the family were there watching their brother get arrested, and then when James saw from a distance his brother go up the hill to Golgotha, and when he saw his brother go onto the cross, and I'm sure he was thinking, I really do like my brother, but he deserved this. He got himself into, into the wrong place. And then when he saw his brother nailed to the cross, he also would have heard the way that his brother Jesus chose to use some of his last words before dying. Do you know that Jesus prayed while he was on the cross? The people who were killing Jesus were the very ones he'd come to save. That's what Jesus said. The ones who were crucifying him and also the ones who didn't stop it were the ones that he'd come to love and give himself for. And James knew that. And then when Jesus prayed, James would have heard him say, Father, 
as everyone did. And probably in that moment, he imagined, now's when my brother's going to plead with God to rescue him, too late. But Jesus does not say, Father, get me off this cross. He doesn't say that. He doesn't pray that God would punish all the people who put him there. Instead, he says the exact opposite. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I suspect that in that moment, it occurred to James for the very first time to understand something about Jesus that he hadn't picked up yet. It was when Jesus was just getting started in his ministry that he made a claim that until that point, no one could understand. It's when Jesus had said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Ransom is the money that a person pays to free someone who's been enslaved or imprisoned from a prison which, in which they cannot free themselves. Do any of you know about prisons like that? Of course you do. Some of you have children who are in prison like that. Or friends. But now it occurs to James, the reason that Jesus didn't pray to get off the cross is this is what he meant when he said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The only way God answers this prayer of Jesus to forgive others is if Jesus stays on the cross and dies for everyone. You see that? Paul, reflecting on the death of Jesus, described it in similar ways in a little letter that he wrote to Titus. These are important words, so take your time with me here. In Titus 2.14, Paul writes this about Jesus. Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Iniquity is one of the many words that's related to the word sin in the Hebrew language and then taken over into the Greek. It means that which is not equitable. It's unfair treatment. It's a way of living that's wrong. It's crooked. It goes against what God wants. And the deep conviction that runs from the beginning throughout the entire scripture is that the moment any man or woman turns away from God into iniquity or sin, he finds himself imprisoned behind bars that are too strong for him to break. And forever, anyone who walks away from God will be trapped in that kind of prison. But here, Paul interprets the death of Jesus, which James would have seen, as a gift in which Jesus gave himself for us to redeem. That's another word that's related to the word ransom. Redemption is the entire process where one person comes and gives uh, what is required to pay for the freedom of another person. And here Paul says, when Jesus died for us, by the way, that us includes every person on planet Earth. It does. Paul says this repeatedly, that he died for all. He says it without any equivocation. There's no boundaries around who this death was for. John said it. Jesus died. He gave himself not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That means everybody. And when he did that, he did that to free us from all iniquity. And what must you do to receive that freedom? You must believe. And believe in the sense of trusting yourself to Jesus. And if you've never done that this morning, you will always be trapped in sin. You will always be trapped. You can never free yourself unless you trust Jesus. And if you've never trusted him, trust him now. Let your heart and your mind say, without you, I am always going to be trapped. Oh God, free me from this prison. That's what you must say from the depths of your heart. That's all you must say. And then you must receive with gratitude and humility the grace of God which frees you and the prison doors are wide open. Jesus gave himself 
on the cross to redeem you and every one of us from all iniquity and all we must do is gladly receive it. And if you receive it, not only do you have freedom, but here's the second point and this is why James says you must regard Jesus' wishes to know what your life is for. If you receive the freedom that comes because he redeemed you, guess what else you must also accept? Think about it logically. You must also accept that since he purchased you, you belong to him and not yourself anymore. Which means, when you ask the question, what is my life for? You can't answer it unless you realize that it's not your life, strictly speaking. It's Jesus' life since he purchased it already. Do you see that? Now, listen. If Jesus were a tyrant, that would be a bad thing for us. It would. If someone came and purchased another person with the redemption or the the ransom price in ancient days, it was a good thing or a bad thing depending on the character of the one who did the purchasing. God is love. Jesus is God's love in person. It is love that has purchased you. You belong to God who is love. And so that means there's nothing better for you, absolutely nothing, than when you think about next year or next month or tomorrow to think, what is my life for? to think it belongs to Jesus and then to let that truth guide you into how you answer the question about what your life is for. After declaring that in Christ God has owned us in in Titus 2.14, look at how Paul continues because here Paul not only says that Jesus redeemed you but directly states the goal that Jesus had in so doing. Look, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might, look at the second part of the clause, purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. And so why did Jesus give himself for you? So that he could purify you. And listen now, that does not mean make you a holier-than-thou sort of person. It does not mean make you someone who is so righteous that you love looking down on others who are less righteous. That's not why he did it. Purifying there should evoke the same kind of imagery that we've been dwelling on in James. Purification is a process where there is a refiner's fire that burns away the stuff that holds you back from being who God made you to be so that it goes away and what's left is the pure and, and, and uh, the pure silver that God can mold into a vessel that is worthy of his purposes. And, and the purposes that God had in mind are right there so that you would be zealous for these two things, good deeds. Actually, that's one thing. Two words, one thing, good deeds. And here, if you will follow it, is the simple and broad answer to the question of what your life is for. It's for good deeds. If it seems too simple, dwell on it for a few moments. This is what Paul declares emphatically about the motivation behind God's decision to give himself in Jesus Christ for you so that you would become a person who in the world was zealous for good deeds. If you think maybe this is just one place where it happens in the New Testament and there's lots of other things. Yeah, there are lots of other words in the New Testament. Many of them indicate that this is a faithful way to understand the question of why did God give himself for me in Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 8 all the way through 10, I brought up... Uh, this passage a few weeks back. It says there that we're saved by grace, not by good works so that anyone can boast. 
but this is God's gift to us in Christ. And then in verse 10, it goes on to say, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works to be our way of life. That's just another way of saying God saved you for good deeds. You go to 2 Corinthians and you're reading in chapter five and you can't believe this stuff is the best stuff you've ever read. You get to verse 14 and it says there, he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves. That means no one would ever answer the question, what is my life for just referring to themselves anymore, but for those for whom he died and was raised again. That's why Jesus died, so that you would live for him from now on. Uh, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, before Jesus is even born, Zechariah makes a prophecy about what's going to happen with this baby who is born, and he says, God has finally come to deliver us from the hands of our enemies so that we can serve him without fear every single day of our lives. Another way of saying that is good deeds. I could keep going on. Should I? All right, let's go way back then. A Abram, before he's even called Abraham, God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to deliver you into the place where you have descendants and land. Why? Why is God going to do this for Abram? So that he can become the father of many nations, Abraham, and through his seed he can bless the whole entire world. Do you see the pattern again? God's grace comes to save someone. Why? So that after they are themselves saved by God's grace, they can go and say, what is my life for? Good deeds. And that's what your life is for. And this is a place for me to give you a very potent warning. You must get this. The moment you start to think, okay, my life is for good deeds. The moment you start to think, so that God will accept me, you need the correction of turning around the order. No, good deeds are not so that God will save me, but they are because God has saved me. Do you see it? And that's the order of it. I love that you applauded. That is something to applaud about. It really is. Listen, the more people who are spontaneous, spontaneously enthusiastic about the idea that God's grace has come to rescue us so that we can do good in the world, the more that God's kingdom comes through those who in humility and with joy have learned to answer the question, what is my life about in reference to Jesus the Lord? And that's what we were made for as a church and, as, and, for, and to be as individuals. I'm getting choked up in a way I didn't expect. <laughs> So listen, here's how, and I want to be practical as your pastor, here's how you should discover the good deeds for which God has saved you. I put it in that order on purpose. You're saved by grace. Now, how will you discover the good deeds that God has for you? First of all, you are going to pay attention to where you are. And this is absolutely critical because you can never, ever live real life where you aren't. And that sounds weird, but, but dwell on it for a minute. How much of your life do you waste thinking if I were only somewhere else? And in those moments, what you waste is what God can never redeem because you've let it go. But if you don't like where you are, and I know a lot of you have good reasons not to like where you are. Some of you kids have a reason not to like where you are. And some of you parents have a reason not to like where you are. Listen, your life is first of all where you are. Do you see it? Pay attention to where you are. And then where you are, ask God to help you see what you can do where you are, which is good. You have to do that. If you're thinking, oh, if only I were over there, then I could do good. You're not really where you are. If you're where you are and you say, God, what is the good which I, I can do even now? And you have some miserable problem that you're facing right now. That is your real life. And that's where you can ask God, what's the good that I can do right here. That's what your life is for. 
And I know a lot of you have all kinds of complexities in your life with your children not being who you wish they were or your, or your jobs not having turned out as you wished or whatever it is. Once you are there and then you say, God, help me see the good that I can do, here's the third step, do it. And do not say, I'll do it tomorrow because tomorrow might not come. Do you see that? And whatever it is, the invitation that James wants to push us toward is to say with confidence, my life is for whatever Jesus Christ says it's for because he owns it and he saved me to do good. And then right there, say, what, Jesus, what do you want me to do that is good? And you have a coworker who's going through a really messy divorce right now and you've heard him twice complain about it during work hours. You grab him by the arm one afternoon and you say, listen, I also went through a really tough divorce. Would you let me take you to lunch tomorrow? I need to talk to you. And then tomorrow at lunch you say, the only thing that got me through my divorce was the presence of God in my life through Jesus Christ. That's it. I don't know what you believe about him, but you tell me what you're facing and I'm gonna listen and at the end of my time, I'm gonna take notes and I'm gonna pray for you to, to, to Jesus that he'll help you. Would you do that? And then when he gets done, say, listen, can I invite you to my church? Because another thing that God did is he brought me into a community of people who helped me. Can you come to church with me? I think that'd be helpful to you. And that is the good deed for you to do right where you are. Maybe that's what it is for you. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you don't work right now. You're unemployed and it's been really hard. You're, 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 you don't know what to do with your life. And then someone in the family says, hey, you know, your great aunt just got a really negative diagnosis from the doctors. She has cancer. It's so bad that she's not even gonna get it treated because it would just ruin the last two months of her life anyway. And then it occurs to you, I'm gonna go move in with my great aunt for the last two months of her life and I'm gonna take care of her every day until she dies because that's a good thing to do. And I'm going to listen to her tell me about the things that she loved in life. And at the end of every day, I'm going to pray with her and thank God for all of her good memories. And then I'm also going to ask her before she dies, what do you regret? What do you wish was different? And when she confesses it to me, I'm going to tell her, you know that God forgives people in Jesus Christ who confess. Can we pray together? And I'm going to do that. And then at her funeral, I'm going to say, it is a good thing that I did that. That was the thing that God wanted me to do. And then I'm going to ask what's next. Maybe it's neither one of those. Maybe your son, you suspect that your son has started to smoke weed. And you think, I hope it's not more than that. Because drugs kill people, right? And, and everything in you wanting to believe, it's not that. It's got to be something else. And in this moment, the good deed that you're pressed toward is, ask him if it's more than that. Reach out and get help. Bring others into this. And it occurs to me that some of you have lost family members to drug addiction because maybe you didn't do that. And you might think, I wish I'd done differently. Bring, lift that to God. Would you lift that to him? And say, God, I wish I'd done differently. And then can we as a church be people together who in, with good deeds in our heart choose not to ignore the problems but instead see those as occasions to let God use us in this one hour that we have? Would we do that? If someone's really broken up near you, put your hand on them. The truth about every one of us is that God is waiting in every moment and in every hour and in every week and every month and every year to show us why he gave himself for us. And as many of you as are in here, that's how many potential answers there are to the question of what does Jesus want me to do with this life of mine? And whatever way it is, it's going to be a deed which is good. 
And that's why God gave himself for us in Christ. And this is the word that I want to end with, and you must listen to me now. When you see it, do not delay, because tomorrow is not yours. Look at verse 17. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. And James says this, and it's strong for a reason. He knows how often religious communities are in the habit of believing that sin is only the bad things that people do, which they're not supposed to do. He knows that about us. And he knows also that the way the devil ruins our hours is by tricking us into only ever thinking about the wrong things which other people are doing and only calling that sin so we can feel good about ourselves and rest easy and do nothing at all except look at them and judge them. But here James corrects that by telling us sin is also every moment you don't do the good thing that you know you should do. And so if right now you think, I need to forgive that person who hurt me because Jesus says I have to, do it right after the service ends. Would you wait until the service ends? Let's count on us getting to there at least. Or if you have to reach out and take responsibility for a failure in which you hurt somebody else, call them today and say, I'm sorry that I did that. Or if you know it's time to ask somebody to come and help you and pray for you because you've been managing this problem all by yourself, don't let this day end without you reaching out to someone and saying, I need you to help me by praying for me. If you know it's time for you to take a step forward and get connected more than you have at this church, to break out of your sort of isolation and say, no, I'm going to get involved in a group. Don't wait, get involved. If you think it's time for me to actually use some of my home to welcome other people in and I need to host a discussion group, go and talk to Jared. Am I pushing this one too hard? No, go and talk to Jared after the service. If you think it's time for me to get generous with my experience as a teacher and get involved in teaching the little children here or get involved with youth, I've never, if it's time for me to run or walk the half marathon and actually use my energy in, in October to raise money for others, whatever it is, if, if it's time for you to reach out to that lonely person who is always by themselves, do not delay. Go ahead and doing, do it right now and each and every moment you are thinking, I'm too tired, I'm too heavy laden, I'm too burdened to do it stop saying all of that stuff and then you're going to think Jesus died for me so that my life would be about good deeds and then you're going to say my life is for good deeds and then you're going to say Jesus help me see what it is and then when you do do it and especially if you get tempted which some of you have every reason to believe because you've told me about what's going on in life tempted with the idea I'm just too burdened right now it's too heavy I have too much that I can barely manage I can't do a good deed for anybody else, then listen to me. Jesus says to you, yes, you've got it wrong. You're not to do the good deeds under your own strength. You come to me and I will take every single thing that's too heavy for you to carry. I'll take it away and then I'll give you the good deed to do. And I'm so sure of this because Jesus has relieved me of my burdens. Has he done that for anybody else in here? So that you and so that I can say, how shall we help the others around us? And so let's ask now for our hearts to be drawn to Jesus, the Lord, who's lo who, who, who owns our lives and help him see how we can use them for good. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Christ you have purchased us out of your grace and out of your mercy. Please, in this very moment, invite everyone to come to you, especially those who are heavy burdened and carrying weight that is too much for them to carry. And would you, by your grace and your mercy and your love, would you unburden us in those ways that are too much for us 
And then as we've been unburdened, would you give us the work that you yourself died for us to have? And then with joy and with courage and with strength and with enthusiasm and gladness, would you help us walk one step at a time in the freedom that you died to give us so that we would be people who are about the good works which you died so that they would be our lives. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.